0: Welcome to another episode of the Augmented podcast. Augmented brings industrial conversations that matter, serving up the most relevant conversations on industrial tech. And our vision is a world where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In this episode of the podcast, the topic is lean operations. Our guest is John Carrier, Senior Lecturer of Systems Dynamics at MIT. In this conversation, we talk about the people dynamics that block efficiency in industrial organizations. Augmented is a podcast for industrial leaders, process engineers, and shop floor operators, hosted by futurist Trond Arne Unheim and presented by Tuller.
1: John, welcome to the show. How are you?
2: Trond, I'm great, and thank you for having me today.
1: So we're gonna talk about lean operations, which is very different from a lot of things that people imagine around factories. John, you you're an engineer, right?
2: I am a uh, engineer, control engineer by training. Yeah.
1: some Michigan in there, uh, your way to MIT and uh, chemical engineering, uh, especially uh, focused on systems dynamics and, and control. And you also got yourself an MBA. So you have a dual, if not a three-part perspective on, on this problem. But tell me a little bit about your background. I've encountered several people here on this podcast, and they talk about growing up in Michigan. I don't think that's a coincidence.
2: OK. It's not. Uh, So I was born and raised in the city of Detroit. We moved out of the city the Dale of Oil Embargo in 1973. I've had a lot of relatives grow up and work in the auto industry. So if you grow up in that area, you're just immersed in that culture. And you're also aware of the massive quote unquote business cycles that companies go through. What I learned after coming to MIT and uh, having the chance to meet the great Jay Forrester, a lot of those business cycles are self-inflicted. What I do is, I see a lot of the things that went right and went wrong for the auto industry, and I can help bring that perspective to other companies.
1: (laughs) People have a bunch of assumptions about, I guess, assembly lines and factories. Uh, You know, one thing is if you grew up in Michigan, it would seem to me from previous guests that you actually have a pretty clear idea of what did go on when you grew up, you know, in assembly lines, because a lot of people, their parents were working in manufacturing, they had this conception. Could we start just there? What's going on at assembly lines?
2: I'm going to go to uh, actually back to 1975 to a Carrier family picnic. My cousin, who's uh, 10 years older than I, his summer job, he uh, worked at uh, basically Ford Wayne, one of the assembly plants. He was making $12 an hour in 1975. So he paid his whole college tuition in like a month. But the interesting point was, he was talking about his job and all the adults were around. He goes, Do you know that when they like scratch the paint on the car, they let it go all the way to the end and they don't fix it till it gets to the parking lot. And I'll never forget this. All the adults jumped on him and they're like, are you an idiot? Do you know how much it costs to shut the line down, right? And if you use finance, that's actually the right answer. You don't stop the line because of scratch. You fix it later, right? Keep the line running. It's $10,000 a minute, right? But actually in the short term, that's the right decision. In the long term, if you keep doing that, You're building a system that simply makes defects at the same rate it makes product. And it's that type of logic and culture that actually was deeply ingrained in the thinking. And it's something that the Japanese car companies got away from. It's funny how deeply ingrained that concept of don't stop the line is, right? And uh, if you do that, you'll make defects at the same rate that you make product. And then if you look at the Detroit newspapers, even today, you'll see billion dollar recalls every three months. And that's a cycle you've got to get yourself out of.
1: You know, it's interesting that we went straight there because it's, I guess, such a truism that the manufacturing assembly line kind of began in Detroit, or at least, you know, that's where the lore is. And then you're saying there was something kind of wrong with it from the beginning. What is it that caused this particular fix on keeping the everything humming as, as opposed to, I guess, what we're going to talk about, which is fixing the system around it?
2: There's a lot of work on this. There's my own perspective is what I've read. I've talked to people. the, The best I can come up with is it's the metrics that you pick for your company, right? So if you think about the American auto industry basically grew up in a boom time. So every car you made, you made profit on and their competitive metric was for General Motors, be the number one car company in the world. And so what that means is you never miss a sale, right? So we don't have time to stop to fix the problem. We're just going to keep cranking out cars and we'll fix it later, right? If you look at the the Japanese auto industry, when it arose after World War II, they were under uh, extreme parts shortages. So if one thing were broken or missing, they had to stop. So part of what was built into their culture is make it right the first time, make a profit on every vehicle versus dominate market share.
1: Got it. So this, uh, I guess, obsession with system that you have and that you got, I guess, through your education at MIT and other places, what is it that that does to your perspective on the assembly line? Because I am struck by there were obviously reasons why the, the Ford or the Detroit assembly lines, like you said, looked like they did and they prioritized perhaps sales over other things. When you study systems like this, manufacturing systems to be very specific, how did you even get kind of to your first sort of grasp of that topic? Because a system, you know, by its very nature, you know, you're talking about complexity. How do you even study a system in the abstract? Because that's very different, I guess, from going into an assembly and trying to fix a system.
2: So it's a great question. And just one thing I want to note for the audience is, although we talk about assembly lines, most manufacturing work is actually problem solving and and not simply repetitive. So we need to start changing that mindset about what operations really is in the US. We can come to that at the end. I'll tell you, I'm a chemical engineer. Three piece of advice from a chemical engineer. The first one is never let things stop flowing. And the reason why that's the case in a chemical plant is because if something stops flowing for a minute or two, You'll start to drop things out of solution, and it will gum everything up, right? You'll reduce the capacity of that system to your next turnaround, at least. And what happens, you start getting sludge and gunk. And for every class I was ever in in chemical engineering, you know, you take class in heat transfer, thermodynamics, kinetics. I never took a class in sludge or (laughs) sticky solids or leftover inventory and blending, Right. And then when I first went to a real factory after uh, doing my graduate work, I spent six years or, you know, four to six years studying uh, Laplace transforms on dynamics. All I saw were people running around. I'm like, that's not in the Laplace table. And again, to understand a a chemical plant or a refinery, it takes you three to five years. So the question is, how can you actually start making improvement in a week when these systems are so complex? And it's watch the people running around, right? So that's why I focus a lot on maintenance. Teams, and I also work with operations when these things called like workarounds that grow into hidden factories. So, the magic of what I've learned through system dynamics is 80 to 90% of the time the system's working okay, 10 or 20% it's in this abnormal condition, which is unplanned, unscheduled. I can help with that right away.
1: So, you mentioned the term hidden factories. Can you enlighten me on how that term came about, what it really means, and in your practical work and consulting work, helping people at factories and, and operations teams and maintenance teams, as you said, why is that term relevant and, and what does it really do?
2: Great. So, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring up the origin. So, uh, uh, many of people on this call recognize, recognize the name Armin Feigenbaum because when he was a graduate student at the Sloan School back in the 50s, he was working on a Book which has now come the the Bible Total Quality Management or TQM right he's well known for that he's not as well known for the second concept which uh, he should be better known for is right after he graduated he took a job in Pittsfield Massachusetts for uh, one of the GE plastic plants right here it comes out of you know MIT I'm going to apply you know linear equations I'm going to do solving all this mathematics operations constraints all these things when he gets into that system he realizes thirty percent of everything going on is unplanned, unscheduled, chaotic, not repeated. He's like, my mathematical tools just break down here. So he did something as important as marketing as it was important as an operational objective. He named these things called hidden factories, right? And he said 30% of all that work is in these hidden factories. And it's just dealing with small little defects that we never ever solve. But over time, they actually erode our productivity of the system, so they can eat up 10 to 20% of the productivity. And then finally, it's work that I'm doing. It's the precursor to a major accident or disaster. And the good side is if you leave the way the system works alone, the 80%, and just focus on understanding and reducing these hidden factories, you can see a dramatic improvement quickly and only focus on what you need to fix.
1: Hmm. So for you, you focus on when the system falls apart. So you have the risk
2: angle to this problem. Exactly. And so, just two things. I'm, I'm like a doctor and I do diagnosis, right? So, when you go to the doctor, I'm not there to look at your whole system and fix everything. I'm like, here's your first three things we got to work at. And by the way, I use data to do that. And what I realized is if everyone just steps back after this call and think about today, right? When you get to the end of the day, what percent of everything that factory or system happened that was in your schedule, right? And you'll start to realize that 30% of the people are chasing symptoms. So you need data to get to that root cause, and that will tell you what data to collect. And second, look for time, right? Because what you're doing is these hidden factors are trying to keep the system running because you have a customer, you have your tack time, and so people are scrambling. And if you put that time back into the system, that's going to turn into product.
1: John, I'm just curious, when you say data, I mean, there's so much talk of data and big data and all kinds of data, but in manufacturing, apart from the parts that you're producing, I mean, some of this data is hard come by. When you say data, what data would you even get access to?
2: I come from the Albert Einstein school is, I need a ruler and I need a stopwatch, right? Go into any system that you work in, whether it be your factory or your house, and ask the last time someone measured how long something took. And you will find a dearth of that data. And the reason why I love time data, it never lies. Like most data I see in databases, it was collected under some context. I can't use it. So I go right on the floor and start watching five or 10 observations and looking at all the variation. The second point I ask, what's a minute worth in your system or a second? So if we're in an auto assembly plant, in a chemical plant, if we're in a hospital in an operating room, those minutes and seconds are hundreds to thousands of dollars, right? Right. So within about 20 minutes, not only do have I measured where there's opportunity, we're already on the way to solving it.
1: So, so far, you haven't talked much about the technology aspect. So, you know, you work at a business school, but that business school is at MIT. There's a lot of technology there. It strikes me that a lot of times when we talk about improvements, certainly when we talk about efficiencies in factories, people bring up automation machines as the solution to that tool. And I'm sure you're not against machines. But you seem to focus a lot more on time on organizational factors. How should people think about the technology factor inside of
2: of their operations? So first, I just uh, you brought up uh, my nickname's Doctor Don't, and the reason they call me Doctor Don't is because they'll go, should we invest in this? Can we buy this robots? I say no, you can't do that, and I'm going to tell you why. Is first is I was quote unquote fortunate enough to work uh, in a lot of small and mid sized machine shops during the 2009 downturn. And uh, I was brought in by the banks, right, because they were in financial trouble. And the one thing I noticed, there was always a million-dollar automation or robot wrapped in plastic. And large companies can get away with overspending on technology. Small and mid-sized companies can't. And so what you really want to do is go and watch and see what the problem is, buy just as much technology as you need, and then scale that. First is like I just said, I was just in a plant uh, a few weeks ago and they just implemented several hundred sensors to basically listen to their system. That's all good. It's data we need. Two problems. Why'd you put in several hundred and not put in 20? And second, when we inspected it, about 15% weren't either not plugged in or weren't reading. So what happened was if we would have started with 20 and put the resources in analyzing that data, then when we scaled to the several hundred, we'd add our systems in place. Instead, we overwhelmed. Everyone with data. So it really didn't change the way they work. Now we fixed that. But your question was, why am I skeptical or slow to invest in technology? Technology costs money and takes time. If you don't look at the system first and apply the technology to solve the system problem, you're going to end up with a million dollar piece of equipment wrapped in plastic. If you go the other direction, you will scale successfully. And no one's better than this in Toyota, right? They only invest in the technology they need. Yet you can argue they're at least as technologically sophisticated as all the rest. And they've never lost money except in 2009. So that is a proof point.
1: What are some examples of uh, places you've been in lately? I don't know, individual names of companies, but you know you said you work in kind of mid-sized companies, those are <laughs> the manufacturing sector is mid-sized companies, so that sounds very relevant. What are some examples and in some industries where you have gone in and done this kind of work?
2: I work for large companies and small mid-sized and I'm a chemical engineer, but I love machine shops, okay? So I sit on the board of a $25 million machine shop. They make parts for a diesel truck and some military applications. They make flywheels. So one of their big challenges is in the United States and the world, we're suffering with a a problem with castings. We received our castings. Interesting thing is, you know, there's void fractions. One of the things I do want to share as a systems guy, I'm not an expert in mechanical engineering or any of that, but I can add value by helping look for defects. Let me tell you what their challenge is, is. So first of all, more of their castings are bad. Then this surprised me, I learned from asking questions. If you've ever been in a machine shop, one thing I learned about when you're making casting, there's always bubbles in it. You can't avoid it. The art of it is, can you put the bubbles in the places where they don't hurt, right? You minimize the bubbles and you move them to the center. So one is we're getting bad castings. But the second part was when we made some of these castings and they had a void problem in the center. So that doesn't cause a problem with your flywheel. The customers sent them back because they're becoming oversensitive to defects that don't count. And it's because they switched out staff. So I guess what I'm I'm trying to say here is our supply chain is undergoing this new type of stress because we're losing the type of expert system expertise that we've had from people that have worked in this industry 20 to 30 years. That's a, a really important aspect. The second is we're in there line balancing all the time. I think a lot of the things you learn in class, you spend one class on load balancing or line balancing operation manufacturing, and then you go into a factory and no one's doing it. So I just wanted to share two points. My one factory was doing that. They cut 30% of that time. Another system I'm working in, they have a one experienced supervisor managing four new people on four different setups what I realized is there's not enough of that supervisor to go around. We're like, why don't we shoot videos like the NFL does, right? And watch those films of how people do they work. Because when you're an expert, Trond, and you go to do a task, you say that has five steps. But if I sent you or me new, we'd look and go, you know, there's really about 80 steps in there, right? And you explained it to me in 15 minutes, right? How am I going to remember that? What is shooting films so people can go back and watch instead of, bothering their supervisor all the time, which they won't do. So what I do think to wrap up on this point is when you talk about technology, the camera, the video that you have in your pocket, or you can buy for $200 is the best technology you can probably apply in the next three to six months. And I would greatly encourage everyone to do something like that.
0: In the new book from Wiley, Augmented Lean, a human-centric framework for managing frontline operations, serial startup founder Dr. Natan Linder and futurist podcaster Dr. Trond arn Endheim deliver an urgent and incisive exploration of when, how, and why to augment your workforce with technology and how to do it in a way that scales, maintains innovation, and allows the organization to thrive. The key thing is to prioritize humans over machines. Here's what Klaus Schwab, executive chairman of the World Economic Forum, says about the book. Augmented Lean is an important puzzle piece in the fourth industrial revolution. Find out more on www.augmentedlean.com and pick up the book in a bookstore near you.
1: I wanted to ask you then, derived from this, to what extent can some of these things be taught as skills on a systemic level in a university or in a, you know, in in some sort of course? And to what extent, you know, do you really just have to be uh, working in manufacturing and observing and learning with data on your own? By extension, you know, to what extent can a manager or, you know, someone, anyone in the organization just... of develop these practices on their own? And to what extent do you need mentorship from the outside to to sort of make it happen or or see something in the system that is
2: very difficult to see from the inside? So it's interesting you ask that because that's very much the problem I'm dealing with. Because as good as our universities are, the best place to learn operations and manufacturing is on the factory floor. So how do you simulate that approach? I teach lean operations at the MIT Sloan And what I did with my students is I asked them to pick a routine task, video two minutes of it, and reduce that by 30%. And I've done this two years in a row. When you look at these projects, the quality of the value streams and the aha moments they had of time that they were losing is stunning. You know what the challenge is? They don't yet always appreciate how valuable that is. And what I want them to realize is if you're washing dishes or or running a dishwasher, why is that any different from running a uh, sterilization process for hospital equipment? Why is that any different from when you're actually doing setup so that maintenance can get their work done 30% faster? I've given them the tools and hopefully that will click when they get out into uh, the uh, workspace. But I do have one success point. I had the students, for some classes, they have to run computers and simulations during class. So that means everyone has to have you know the program set up. They have to have the documentation. So you can imagine five to 10 minutes of class, people getting everything working, right? One of my teams basically said, we're gonna read, it took about five minutes. And they said, we're gonna do this in 30 seconds just by writing some automated scripts. They did that for uh, our statistics class. And then they shared it with their other classmates beautiful value stream, videoed the screens, did it in about four or five hours. The next class uh, they took later, I found out is uh, they did that for a class project and they sold the rights to a startup. So first is getting them that example in their own space. And then two, helping them make analogies that improving things in your own house isn't all that much different than the systemic things in a factory.
1: Learning by analogy, I love it. I wanted to profit from your experience here on a broader question, takes a little bit more into the futuristic perspective. But in our pre-conversation, you talked about your notion on industry 4.0, which you know to me is a very sort of technology deterministic, certainly tech-heavy perspective anyway. But you talked about how that for you is related to, and you use another metaphor, an analogy of a global nervous system. What do you think, well, either industry 4.0 or, you know, the changes that we're seeing in the industry having to do with, you know, new approaches, some of them technology, what is it that we're actually doing with that? And why did you call it a a global
2: nervous system? Uh, When I graduated from school and I'm a control systems skilled in the arts, so to speak. And the first thing I did, this is back in the 90s. So we're industry 3.0 is when you're in a plant, no one told me I was going to spend most of my time with the uh, C or the instrumentation and control techs and engineers, and that's because getting a sensor was unbelievably expensive, right? Two, actually even harder than the, getting the budget for it was actually getting the INC tech's time to actually wire it up. It would take six weeks to get a sensor. And then three, if it weren't constantly calibrated and taken care of, it would fall apart. And four, you get all those three workings. If no one's collecting or knows how to analyze the data You just wasted all your money. So what was exciting to me about Industry 4.0 was, one, the cost of sensors has dropped precipitously. Two, they're wireless with magnets. So the time to set it up is literally minutes or hours rather than months and years. Three, uh, now you can run online algorithms and stuff. So basically always check the health of these sensors and also collect the data in a form so I can go and in minutes I can analyze what happened Versus, oh, I got to get to the end of the week. I never looked at that sensor. And for what excited me most, and this gets to this nervous system, is if you look at the way industries evolved, what always amazes me is we got gigantic boilers and train engines and just massive equipment, physical goods. Yet moving electrons actually turns to be much more costly in the measurement than actually building the physical device. So we're just catching up on our nervous system for the factory. If I want to draw an analogy, is uh, if you think about leprosy, uh, a lot of people think leprosy is a physical disease. What it is, is it's your nerves are damaged. So because your nerves are damaged, you overuse that equipment, and then you wear off your fingers. And if you look at most maintenance problems in factories, it's because they didn't have a good nervous system to realize we're hurting our equipment. And maintenance people can't go back and say, hey, in three months, you're going to ruin this. And the reason I know it is because I have this nervous system because I'm measuring how much you're damaging it rather than just waving it. And now it becomes global because let's say you and I have three pumps that are plant, right? And we, we need to take care of those. They're on the production line. It's very common. What if we looked at the name of that pump, called the manufacturer who's made? tens of thousands of those, right? This is the global part. So they can help us interpret that data and help us take care of it. So there's no defect or failure that someone on this planet hasn't seen. It's just, we were never had the ability to connect with them and send them the data on a platform like we can with a $5,000 pump today. So that's why I look at it. It's really becoming global diagnosis.
1: It's uh, interesting. I mean, you you oscillate between these machine shops, and and you had some. Well, you had a medical example, but you had a. You know, you're in in medical settings as well, and applying your knowledge there. What is the commonality, I guess, in this uh, activity between machine shops, uh, you know, improving machine shops and improving medical teams' ability to treat disease and operate faster? What what is it that is the commonality? So you've talked about the importance, obviously, of uh, communication and gathering data quicker, so these sensors obviously helping out here. But there's a physical aspect, and you know, in my head, a machine shop is quite different from an operating room, for example. But I guess the third factor would be human beings, right?
2: I'm going to put an analogy in between the machine shops and the hospital, and that's an F1 pit crew. And the reason I love F1, it's the only sport where the maintenance people are as front and center, right? So let's now jump to hospitals. Like, So the first thing is, if I work in a hospital, I'm talking to doctors or nurses or the medical community, and I start talking about you know saving time and all that. Hey, we don't make Model Ts. Every scenario we do is different, and we need to put the right amount of time into that surgery, which I completely agree to. Where we can fix is, did we prepare properly? Are all our toolkits here, right? Is our staff trained and ready? And you'd think that all those things are, are worked out. I want to give two examples. One is from the literature, and one's from my own experience. I'd recommend everyone uh, look up California infant mortality rates and crash carts. The state of California basically, by building crash carts for when you uh, for pregnancies and births, cut their infant mortality rate by half just by having that kit ready. Complete F one analogy, right? I don't want my surgeon walking out to grab a knife <laughs> during surgery, okay? And then second is I ran a course uh, with my colleagues at uh, uh, MIT for the local hospitals here in Boston. You know, one of the doctor teams did over the weekend, they built one of these based on our our class. They actually built, this is the kit we want. And I was unbelievably surprised how when we use the F1 analogy, the doctors and surgeons loved it. Not because we're trying to actually cut their time off. We're trying to put the time into the surgery room by doing better preparations and things like that. So grabbing the right analogy is key. And if you grab the right analogy, these systems lessons work across basically anywhere where time gets extremely valuable.
1: As we're rounding off, I wanted to just ask you and come back to the topic of lean. And, you know, you you use the term and you teach a class on lean operations. Some people, well, I mean, lean means many things. It means something to, you know, in one avenue, I hear this and then I hear that. But to what extent would you say that the fundamental aspects of lean that were practiced by Toyota and perhaps still are practiced by Toyota and the focus on on waste and sort of efficiency aspects, To what extent are those completely still relevant and what other sort of new complements would you say are perhaps needed to take the factory to the future, to take operational teams in any sector into their most uh,
2: optimal state? As a control engineer, I learned about the Toyota production system after I was trained as a control system engineer. And I was amazed by the genius of these people because they have fundamentally deep control concepts in what they do. So uh, you hear like concepts, of, you know, Junka synchronization, observability, continuous improvement. If you have an appreciation for the deep control concepts, you'll realize that those are principles that will never die. And then you can see, oh, short, fast, negative feedback loops. I want accurate measurements. I always want to be improving my system. With my control background, you can see that this applies to basically any system. So in fact, I want to make this argument is a lot of people as you know, we want to go to technology and AI. I think the dominant paradigm for any system is adaptive control. That That's a set of timeless principles. Now, in order to do adaptive control, you need certain technologies that provide you precision analysis, right? Precision measurement, real-time feedback loops. And also let us include people into the equation, which is how do I train people to do tasks that are highly variable that aren't so applying to automation are really important. So I think if people understand, start using this paradigm of an adaptive control loop, they'll see that these concepts of lean and Detroit Toyota production system are not only timeless, it's easier to explain it to people outside of those industries.
1: Hmm. Are there any lessons, finally, to learn the way that, I guess, manufacturing And the automotive sector has been called the industry of industries. And, you know, people were very inspired by it in other sectors and have been. And then there has been a period where people were saying or have been saying, you know, oh, you know, maybe the IT industry is more fascinating or, you know, the results, you know, certainly the innovations are more exciting there. Are we now at a point where we're coming full circle, where there are things to learn again from manufacturing, for example, for knowledge workers?
2: Yeah. you know, what's driving the whole, whether it be knowledge work or working in a factory, which working in a factory is 50% knowledge work. Just keep that in mind because you're problem solving. And you know, what's driving all this is the customer keeps changing their demands, right? So for a typical shoe, it'll have a few thousand SKUs, right? For that year. So the reason why manufacturing operations and knowledge work never get stale is the customer needs always keep changing. So that's one. And I'd, I'd like to just end this with a, a comment from my colleague, Art Byrne. He wrote the uh, uh, Lean Turnaround Action Guide, as well as has a history back to the early 80s. And uh, I have him come teaching my course. When he was at his time at Danaher, which was really one of the first U.S. companies to successfully bring in lean and Japanese techniques, they'd bring in the new students. And the first thing they'd put them on was six months of operations. Then they'd move to strategy and finance and all those things you know, the first thing the students want to do is <laughs> let's get through this operations because we want to do strategy and finance and all the marketing, all the important stuff. And then he's basically found that when they come to the end of the six months, those same students are like, can we stay another couple months? We just want to finish this off. I'm just saying is uh, I work in the floors because it's the most fun to place to work. And if you have some of these lean skills and know how to use them, you can start contributing to that team quickly. That's what makes it fun. But ultimately, that's that's why I do it. And I encourage before people think about it, actually go see what goes on in a factory or system before you start listening to judgments of people who, well, quite frankly, haven't ever done it. So let, let me just leave it at that.
1: <laughs> I got it. I got it. Thank you, John. Spend some time on the floor. That's uh, good advice. Thank you so much. It's been uh, very instructive. Uh, I love it. Thank you. My pleasure,
2: Tron, and, and thanks to everybody.
0: You have just listened to another episode of the Augmented Podcast with host Tron Arne und The topic was lean operations. And our guest was John Carrier, senior lecturer of systems dynamics at MIT. In this conversation, we talked about the people dynamics that block efficiency in industrial organizations. My takeaway is that the core innovative potential in most organizations remains its people. The people dynamics that block efficiency can be addressed once you know what they are but there is a hidden factory underneath the factory, which you cannot observe unless you spend time on the floor. And only with this understanding will tech investment and implementation really work. Stabilizing a factory is about simplifying things. That's not always what technology does, although it has the potential if implemented the right way. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at AugmentedPodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this episode, you might also like other episodes that treat the lean topic. Hopefully you'll find something awesome in these or in other episodes. And if so, do let us know by messaging us. And we would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. The Augmented Podcast is created in association with TULIP. The frontline operation platform that connects people, machines, and devices and systems. Tulip is democratizing technology and empowering those closest to operations to solve problems. Tulip is also hiring, and you can find Tulip at tulip.co. Please share this show with colleagues who care about where industrial tech is heading. And to find us on social media is easy. We are Augmented Pod on LinkedIn and Twitter, and Augmented Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Augmented industrial conversations that matter. See you next time.